voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 29th, 2011. This week, episode 206 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. That's a great day today, Joe. It's beautiful outside. Good to be back in the saddle. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio Trivia Question, an interview with Rick Stonier, the managing partner of Great Wolf Sensing Solutions. We're going to talk instruments and measurements today. Halftime, of course, we'll do our roundup at the end of the show and bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. You can also check out our uh, Facebook page if you get a chance. We're up at IAQ Radio Program. And, of course, we're updating that website every week with a new blog after the show at www.iaqradio.com. Check out Cliff's blog. I think you'll like it. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, to contact the show, just go to the link on the show invitation or go to our website and follow the link that says go to the show or you can also download the show later from you can stream it from our website or download it at that same link go to the show and of course you can get the show from itunes don't forget we also have abih certification maintenance points IICRC continuing education credits and acac renewal credits just email me and request a quiz my email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Again to Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, for answering last week's trivia question, identifying the range of 39 to 43% as the percentage of all energy in the U.S. that is used to heat, cool, illuminate, and ventilate buildings. The IAQ Radio trivia question for... April 29th has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Name both the inventor and his ingenious invention that detected an earthquake in February of 138 A.D. Back to you, Joe. All right. That sounds like a good one, Cliff. Uh, today's guest is Mr. Rick Stonier. He has over 25 years of experience in the design, production, sales, and marketing of indoor air quality instrumentation. He's the managing partner at Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, a Connecticut-based company with manufacturing in Ireland and worldwide sales of mobile PC-based indoor air quality instrumentation. He is also a partner in Technical Measurement Associates, who specialize in sales of portable indoor air quality, x-ray fluorescence, and other analyzers. His previous experience includes 14 years of international management for Solomat, manufacturer of indoor air quality, HVAC, and water quality instrumentation. Rick also has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and has had an active involvement with the ASHRAE TC 1.2 Instruments and Measurements Committee for many years, we look forward to having him enlighten us with his vast knowledge on instrumentation and measurement. But before we do, we've got a little introductory song. Okay, Rick, do we have you on the line? Hello, Rick. Hello, Joe. How are you? Oh, great. Good, good. We've got uh, nice you. introduction. Uh, <laughs> thank you. That, that's Cliff. He's uh, He finds something. I don't know where he finds all these things. but it takes time, Joe. It takes yeah, time. He works Dedication. He's a dedicated guy, I'll tell you, Rick. Anyway, uh, we, we really appreciate having you join us and uh, look forward to discussing a little more on instrumentation and equipment. Uh, before we do, though, can you tell us a little bit about your background with Solomat and um, how they started, uh, maybe a little bit about how Solomat kind of went into the Gray Wolf uh, transition there? Well, uh, Solomat, I joined them back in the mid-80s uh, and uh, started as their North American sales manager, moved into general management here on uh, this side of the pond. They were a U.K. manufacturer, actually 
you know, originally a French-owned company, got sold to a U.S. company, who then got sold to a U.K. company, who then got sold to a Swiss company, and on and on. And um, along the way, I moved into the international sales and marketing management position. And uh, in that position, uh, moved them from what was more strictly uh, heating and ventilation applications for air measurement into uh, indoor air quality, as uh, saw that as a potentially developing market. Um, that was, you know, back in the early uh, 90s that uh, Solomon really moved into indoor air quality measurement. And uh, they came out with their IAQ surveyor uh, back at that time. Uh, of course, Solomon was purchased by Gray Wolf uh, back about six years ago. And uh, although they had manufactured many instruments back at that time, uh, there's only two that Gray Wolf continues to manufacture. Uh, although we service the full range of Solomon products, we manufacture the IAQ surveyor as well as the Zephyr differential pressure meter and sell them to date under the uh, Gray Wolf label. Uh, I'm curious, this is maybe early 90s, I think you said, when you started looking at the indoor air quality market. What made you think that would be a big market for Solomon at the time? And then eventually you've gotten very involved in that market with Gray Wolf. Well, I think the main thing was there was the potential for legislation. Um, OSHA was looking at bringing out legislation on indoor air quality back at that time. Of course, that got shelved, I think it was 1993. Frankly, the tobacco lobby had a lot to do with it, and then there was a change in Congress where any new environmental regulations kind of got put aside, and it's never really come off the shelf since then, as many of you who were around back at that time know. Um, Legislation has come out in other parts of the world in the meantime, and of course, it remains a very pressing problem that many facility managers are very aware of. Um, the attempt to save energy, the easiest way to do that is save on heating and cooling costs in a building uh, by bringing in less air, has a tendency to lead to greater indoor air quality problems. So, you know, we're seeing real development in this market as a result of attempts to save energy, as opposed to legislation here in the States at this time, or in North America. But there are other parts of the country where legislation has uh, either been implemented or is is uh, pending. How is, I'm curious, how is business for you now with respect to, you know, you're very involved with indoor air quality, and we can talk about the mix of products you have in a moment, but I'm just curious, how's the business? Extremely good. Uh, I mean, through the through the economic downturn, you know, we did see a slowing of growth here in North America. Uh, being it's not legislated, it is the type of product that people will put on the shelf, uh, and, or I should say, you know, take, you know, take out of the budget short term. But, you know, we saw very strong growth over in Asia uh, during that period. Now we're seeing uh, things in North America get very much back in track. In Europe, we're seeing very strong growth. It's also fueled by the fact that we have a couple of new products that we've introduced that are also uh, improving our uh, growth in for the IAQ application. Well, let's talk about Gray Wolf now in a little more detail. I, I think you said 19, or wait, uh, let's, let's just figure out what year did you start Gray Wolf? Well, 1998 is when we formed the company. We uh, put a product on the market for the first time. Um, we introduced it at the... 
uh, IH. CE show in Toronto in 2000, I guess that was. So 11 years now that we've had a, you know, that we've had the Direct Sense line of instruments on the market. Okay, that was the Direct Sense. Yeah, the Direct Sense is um, a, a set of it's a it's a set of kit with probes with various sensors that plug into mobile computers. The uh, handheld pocket PCs, Windows Mobile pocket PCs has been sort of the primary platform that we offer in terms of quantity, but they can also be plugged into, you know, what's now Win 7, Windows 7 uh, uh, netbook computers, tablet PCs. Uh, they are for Windows uh, applications uh, as opposed to Android or other. Uh, uh, we, for example, we won't plug it directly into a, um, a uh, Apple uh, iPad, but... Uh, uh, there's a range of different instruments that those sensors can uh, plug into. And, of course, now we've introduced uh, a couple of instruments that use an embedded computer. Uh, the Advanced Sense is the very newest of those, a small, handheld, very rugged unit, which is, uh, as opposed to the mobile computers, more purpose-built, uh, very rugged connectors with options for built-in sensors, although you can plug in the range of Gray Wolf's Direct Sense sensors even people that bought a unit 11 years ago can now plug into our uh, newest platform, the AdvanceSense. I've got one here on the table. It is pretty rugged. What do you think, Cliff? Oh, no, it, it is. And I'm actually, you know, I go back to the old Solomat days. Uh, I remember when, you know, I had a relative, a temperature relative humidor uh, that, that they made. And what was, that was the first uh, device that read almost instantaneously. I mean, and he turned it on, and you could see the changes, and you didn't have to wait, you know, like a minute or two for it to pop up. So very impressive. And, uh, you know, I guess it's still the same thing. You have something you hold in your hand, and you have a, a sensor that uh, you can either hold in the other hand or set down. Very impressive. But the, the technology has come a long way in some respects. I mean, Cliff, you had mentioned that the original one, you had a little trouble with, I guess, uh, it would go off calibration. Well, I think what happened like is, is the probe was a little delicate, and I don't think it was made for, you know, industrial use by water damage restoration technicians. <laughs> uh, I, I remember actually putting it into an airstream uh, of a desiccant dehumidifier to determine what the temperature and uh, relative humidity of the air that, that came out. And I mean, it was a pretty significant airstream. It was probably about 800 CFM or something like that. And, uh, you know, stuck it in there. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, what I had done, had to send it back. And, uh, you know, they got it all fixed and calibrated for me. What about the, the equipment today? Uh, Rick, could it handle that type of, uh, that type of abuse, I guess? Well, when you talk about temperature and humidity, that has come a long way. Um, I mean, you, sensors are available now that are that are very accurate, that cover the full range that you're really interested in for indoor air quality. That are fast response. You mentioned Cliff fast response. That's a that's a that's a crucial for um, IAQ applications because you know typically you need to be able to if you've got a complaint area, for example, you don't want to just measure in a complaint area. You want to measure adjacent uh, rooms, adjacent zones. And you certainly want to be able to check outdoors. So fast response is really, really important. And um, relative humidity sensors these days, typically thin film capacitive humidity sensors, are available. They're really very low cost and uh, generally quite rugged as long as they're built into the probe uh, properly uh, in a rugged format. 
some of the other sensors for certain applica- for certain IAQ applications can still be a bit sensitive, and that is always something for a practitioner to be aware of. Uh, you know how to properly handle and properly take care of the uh, specific sensors that they're working with. Well, we're going to go down the list here in a little bit of the different types of you know, typical IAQ parameters and the measurement instruments available, or at least a, a, an outline of those types of instruments and then how the, the Gray Wolf unit works as well. But before we do, I wanted to go back to Gray Wolf for just a moment. What other instruments that we haven't mentioned so far, uh, what other instruments do you sell at Gray Wolf? Well, Gray Wolf um, you know, does manufacture instruments specific for uh, for um, HVAC applications. Uh, we have hot wire anemometers or thermal anemometers for air velocity. We do manufacture a um, extendable pitot tube. It's quite a unique type of pitot tube, which can be used for a host of HVAC uh, applications. Sort of um, get you know extends out to 60 inches long, but uh, fits into a 15 inch case. Uh, we do uh, differential pressure meters and. Um, we also do quite a bit in terms of software that supports the IAQ application as well as, as well as other applications, both in the report generation side of things. Uh, we have something newer coming out with very shortly in terms of web hosting, so you can get access to any of your instrumentation from a distance, and in that case, with any type of web device like a, like a, like an Apple uh, iPad, um, and. Uh, we do also license software to some other applications for uh, water quality monitoring. Example, for example, in uh, to uh, manufacturers in different industries. Let me uh, change gears just a moment. In the bio, we talk a little bit about a committee you were on, the ASHRAE's TC 1.2 Instruments and Measurement Committee. I. I assume you were, as a, as a manufacturer, you were kind of rep- recommend, you know, representing the manufacturer's viewpoint there, but also as a, uh, a mechanical engineer, you were also involved with the committee because of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that committee and where the information that committee develops gets published? Well, TC 1.2 is one of the original ASHRAE technical committees, as the you know, 1.2 designation might imply. It deals with instrumentation and sensor technology for the broad range of HVAC applications. Now, while there's other ASHRAE committees that may address specific protocols for, say, IAQ measurement, TC 1.2, you know, addresses the uncertainty, range, resolution, such things for specific measurement technologies as they apply to HVAC applications. You know, they're responsible for related ASHRAE research projects, uh, for you know some of the forum seminars and such that you'll see at ASHRAE conferences, and uh, they're also responsible for uh, one of the sections of the fundamentals handbook. Um, yeah, I do want to correct you on uh, one thing in your lead-in, Joe, is that I used to be heavily involved with, for many years with TC 1.2, you know, in- including contribu- contributing fairly significantly to the fundamentals handbook chapter, but. Um, you know, demands with growing a uh, and you know managing and growing the Great Wolf business. I've uh, actually not been active for uh, some time. You know, this TC does very important work that takes a great deal of time, and uh, generally with little reward to the folks who spend uh, all that time on the committee. But uh, you, you certainly have to respect what they do, and I do aspire to getting back to 
greater involvement at some point uh, when uh, my workload allows for it. <laughs> we, it's good. It's good to be busy, Rick. That's great. I'm glad things are going well. Let's let's go on. We want to take advantage of your extensive knowledge on IAQ instruments, and you know, give our listeners some tips on how to choose and use some of the common instruments that they're using on indoor air quality projects. And we already talked a little bit about measuring temperature and relative humidity with handheld type instruments. Can you give us a little summary of the types of instruments available and on your your opinion on like the pros and cons of the different types of instruments? Well, you know, when it comes to indoor air quality, everybody would like a single meter that says yes or no, you know, something like what Dr. Spock from Star Trek might have walked in with. Um, tells you things are good or bad, but uh, it's never going to be quite that simple. You know, there's uh, not just hundreds, probably thousands of specific contaminants that uh, one can deal with, but there are a number of sensors that are readily available that uh, can be, you know, really used as, in some cases, general indicators, or in the case of something like carbon monoxide, you know, where you're, specific, you know, measuring a specific, uh, a specific uh, potentially toxic gas. Um, I think you know one general thing about about sensors being used for indoor air quality is that there are some real differences when you're looking at using them for IAQ as compared to more general toxic exposures for workers because more often than not you're looking at you know lower ranges where you need better sensitivity in those ranges than might be necessary for uh, uh, you know worker toxic exposures um, and also, I mean, we, we talked a little bit before about how important the speed of response relative humidity can be. Well, all the sensors need to be fast response. Uh, in fact, it's an area where I think a lot of manufacturers who kind of package, you know, three or four or five sensors together for, uh, for IAQ, that's where a number of them fall down because they'll have one or two or three sensors in there that are very slow. And, of course, the problem there is, uh, as an example, if you've got a slow carbon dioxide sensor, um, very, very important to check what the outdoor CO2 level is. What you're measuring indoor, indoors may not mean that much, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, unless you know what the outdoor CO2 level is. Well, if you've got a CO2 sensor that's going to take 15 minutes to stabilize, well, some operators are going to just avoid uh, taking that measurement because it takes that long. What more often will happen is you'll see a, an operator go outside and, okay, after, you know, five or six minutes, that's good enough. And then what they're doing is, is you know, not waiting for the sensor to stabilize, and so they're, they'll data log or, uh, you know, record a, um, an invalid measurement. Speed of response is, is, is very, very important, and that, you know, really applies to every single sensor that, uh, you know, that you're using for the IAQ application. Now, when you say stabilize with respect to temperature and relative humidity, I guess more so relative humidity. Temperature seems to be one. Well, maybe I'm wrong. It seems to be one that stabilizes fairly quickly, but at least most of the instruments I've used, relative humidity seems to be all over the board. But can you give listeners a tip as to, you know, what to look for with respect to when they think their meter is stabilized? Is it something they should be able to find in the manufacturer's directions? Is it something that you've got well, to I mean, it's, it's- yeah, it's typically specified as you know ninety percent response within X number of minutes uh, as a specification. What you'll see in real terms is you'll just see the readings. Um, I mean, if you're moving from an area, I mean, let me use carbon dioxide as an example. If you're indoors and you're reading around a thousand parts per million, you go outdoors 
and say it's, you know, the actual reading is 390, which is the worldwide average now, um, you know, what you'll typically see is that reading will start to drop. Some units, after 10 minutes, it's still at 450. And, uh, you know, most sensors, most of the non-dispersive infrared sensors that are offered for indoor air quality applications should, within two or three minutes, be right down at that 390 level. What can speed it up, uh, whether it's carbon dioxide or any of the sensors, is often getting a little flow across it. You know, some units on the market do have built-in pumps or built-in fans to draw air across the sensors, but uh, you know most units work on diffusion, and with diffusion, it can be a function partly of the sensor that's in there and partly where it's located. Um, just an example, we use a humidity sensor that uh, another manufacturer uses exactly the same sensor, but you'll find that Gray Wolf's probe responds faster without any air being passed across it, simply because we've located the sensor right out by an open slot, whereas the um, the other manufacturer has sort of buried it down in electronics. Both sensors will respond very fast if they have a little air, or, or both so both units will respond very fast if they have a little air across them. Well, where do you really want the fast response? When you're doing a walkthrough. And when you're doing a walkthrough, what's the easiest way to do that? Wave the probe a little bit. Just, uh, e- I mean, even the... F- the function of walking is generally enough air to really speed that response time up quite a bit. So a sensor that is buried down in electronics that might take five minutes to stabilize, um, you know, without any airflow, you'll see one or two minutes response for it to really come very close to full stabilization with by just waving the probe a little bit. Uh, I've got a, actually kind of a, a question and a comment and. <laughs> We were involved in a in a high profile building in New Jersey, and there was it was a mold situation and a drying situation. And we were having trouble doing what we were doing, which was maintaining humidity control in the building. And I ended up being able to use your device to prove that what was going on in the building wasn't my fault, but was a function of them running their air handling system and pumping in wet air from outside. And the way I was able to do it was I took uh, your probe, I took a styrofoam cup, I cut a hole in the bottom of the styrofoam cup and put the probe in there and put this up on the vent. And, you know, it was beautiful because, you know, you could see the meter and I could take photographs of both the, the, the meter readings and exactly what I was doing and document that it what was going on wasn't our, you know, what wasn't our fault. Do you sell some sort of cover like that or, you know, so that you can isolate an airstream? Well, an ice, a um, styrofoam cup is a uh, creative way to do it. <laughs> 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 I, I, I imagine it worked just fine for you. We actually do have a, um, a, a nylon hood that can be fitted over the probe where you can draw a sample off of uh, from a, from a, a duct, for example, and run the sample across the uh, across the probe and all the sensors that are in it. Uh, you know, we'll typically put up to six sensors into a single probe. Uh, we also have some uh, laboratory glassware that's designed, you know, specifically for use more in a in the lab type of situation. The same type of situation, the, the same type of application, drawing air across the sensors that are in place. But for field use, the nylon 
put is, uh, you know, works very well. Rick, can you talk a little bit about carbon monoxide detectors and sensors and, and give our listeners a little of your input on what to look for with respect to either purchasing or using a carbon monoxide detector? Well, carbon monoxide is um, uh, another sensor that really is available at comparatively low cost now where they're very, you know, very stable. The key thing with the carbon monoxide sensors, uh, which are most typically electrochemical for uh, field use, is uh, that you want to have, uh, you don't want to go for an extended range sensor because, again, which is almost any type of parameter, the wider the range, you know, the less sensitivity you're necessarily going to get in the range that's important. And with carbon monoxide for indoor air quality, of course, all you really care about is the very low end of the range. So, you know, a sensor with 2,500 ppm range, you're going to lose out in terms of the true resolution of the sensor itself down at the very low end, which is the area that is uh, really going to be of concern for you. But uh, the electrochemical sensors that uh, are used for carbon monoxide, there's a number of different manufacturers, and, um, you know, they typically, for IAQ applications, they'll typically last three, four years. Uh, they are a self-consuming sensor that whether you're actually, even if you're pulling it out in response to IAQ complaints and just using it, uh, you know, once or twice a year, it's going to still, it's kind of running like a battery. And uh, even if you're using it on rare occasions, you're still going to have three, you know, that sort of three, four-year life. But, um, uh, you know, they're generally reasonably stable so that, you know, a factory calibration once a year is generally adequate. Of course, it never hurts to be able to check the calibration yourself. And, uh, you know, most manufacturers of IAQ instruments will allow a way for you to check and, if necessary, do a user adjustment on, say, the zero of a CO sensor and then a gain measurement. In the case of Gray Wolf, we'll do that gain measurement at uh, about 90 parts per million. Now, we're right at about halftime. I just want to let uh, one of our listeners know that we we are going to talk a little bit about formaldehyde later in the show, which is, I think, the primary problem with the FEMA trailers. Rick, I don't know if you've had any I'm sure you have people who are buying your instruments that use them with the FEMA trailers and probably even tried for some of the other uh, drywall issues out there. And we're going to talk about that a little later in the show. But uh, first, we've got to go to our halftime and thank our sponsors, and then we'll bring you right back. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. 
And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Rick Stonier, the managing partner of Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. And Dr. Wow, I just wanted to give you a heads up. We're going to just start the roundup a little early today because I know you're going to have quite a bit to, to add and uh, maybe a question or two yourself. Before we get to that part of the show, though, I wanted to go into another area with Rick that I think has a lot of interest within the indoor air quality industry, and that's the total VOC, volatile organic compound measurements. And typically one method is the use of a photoionization detector that gives you, um, you know, a, a quick uh, readout of total VOCs. But I want to ask Rick if you could to give us a little history about the development and some of the advances of this technology, the PID technology. Um. Well, let me say this uh, before I just go into PIDs is that, uh, be, you know, before photoionization detectors, what is often used were metal oxide sensors, typically tin oxide. And there are still some companies who put those sensors on the market and, uh, you know, say that they're applicable for IAQ. So to be a bit, um, uh, a bit wary of because the metal oxide sensors are, uh, I mean, besides just having limits of detection uh, only in the area of one part per million, uh, where with VOCs you really need to be down in the PPB range. They also uh, have cross-sensitivity uh, with methane, and of course background methane is often in the 1-2 ppm range. So um, for IAQ applications, they'll only be at an indicator of extremely high VOC readings. That would be a tin oxide sensor. Photoionization detectors, um, I mean, back when I first started the market, there were, you know, companies like HNU who were sort of dominating the market, and, and PhotoVac came along. They were, you know, addressing um, industrial uh, toxic exposure levels with photoionization detectors and, and continue to, have, to offer products for that. But, um, you know, they're generally looking at very high levels of VOCs, where in indoor air quality, um, you need, really need to be able to get down into the PPB range. And there are some manufacturers over the past uh, 10 years or so who have come out with units where you can now get PIDs that have sensitivity down into the five part per billion range. Um, again, you have to be you know, concerned about the overall range of these. Usually, if you're if you have a 
sensor that goes all the way up to 10,000 or 20,000 parts per million, you're going to be giving up that low-end range, or at least you're going to see very significant drift. The photoionization detectors, um, they do all have, uh, you know, you, you do have to be very concerned about the drift of these. And uh, realistically, to use them for indoor air quality, you need to be able to calibrate those yourself. It's, it's not going to be practical to just send it back to the to uh, to the manufacturer once a year or even once every six months or three months because these should be calibrated probably each time you use it, but at least you know every uh, every week or two because the amount of drift that they have. But uh, with the appropriate sensor technology, uh, the appropriate photoionization detector, these are an extremely powerful indoor air quality tool. Uh, normally, as a screening tool, um, you know, and or as a bloodhound. Sometimes it's as simple because they're extremely fast response. You can actually sort of follow the VOCs, and often you may find there's a you know a, a closet where there's some open chemicals in there that the custodian has left, and well, that's a simple solution to fix. You know, or you may be able to determine okay, the VOCs are coming from this room and from the carpet where there's some kind of stain in the corner, corner and you may not know what it is. You know, if there's an open can of turpentine sitting next to it, you might have a pretty good idea. If you have no idea what it is, then your best step might be to send some carpet fibers out for for testing as opposed to taking air samples. Uh, the VOC, uh, the, or excuse me, the photoionization detectors, you know, they're great for telling you, at least if you're not determining what the specific uh, uh, compound is or the specific VOC that, uh, that it's picking up uh, is, they're great for telling you when you have an elevated situation, when you might consider going to the next step, which be which would be taking air samples and uh, sending them out for uh, uh, MSGS uh, or excuse me MSGC type evaluation, where you're then actually speciating and determining what the specific volatile organic organic compound is. Uh- I, I wanted. We talked a little bit before the show about uh, the USGBC, the Green Building Council's lead program, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. I know there's a section in there that somehow involves the uh, measurement of total volatile organic, organic compounds in the in the buildings prior to occupancy, or you can flush the building out. But I know you had you had made a good comment on some people would like to see these units that measure total VOCs allowable for use for that type of measurement. But as I understand it, you can't do that. You've got to go to the old EPA compendium. But when I talked to you about it uh, earlier in the week, you had mentioned some good information that I thought um, the sensors could help people with. Can you relay that to our, our listeners? Well, because you're getting an instantaneous measurement with these units and you can leave them for long-term monitoring, uh, you can determine uh, when the VOC level is going to be reduced. Now, uh, you know, the target level for the lead 3.2 is uh, less than 500 micrograms per cubic meter. And um, uh, there are... Uh, to meet the letter of the law of the the lead uh, credit, you would need to take samples and uh, send them out. Uh, typically, SUMA canister samples. Um, 
in fact, uh, the uh, ASHRAE uh, uh, or the U.S. EPA Compendium of Methods uh, for Determination of Air Pollutants gets pretty specific about the methodology for air sampling itself, and you need to send it out for uh, GCMS analysis. But what you would do with a with the photoionization detector is screen to determine when are you going to pass. When you see that this unit, a properly calibrated unit, is reading below 500 micrograms per cubic meter, you can be you can be very highly confident that at that point when you take samples and send them out that it's going to pass. Um, it's a lot easier than taking samples um, over the course of uh, of days until you reach that point. The PID gives you instantaneous results right there on site. I also wanted to mention you, uh, I, don't, I forget what you called it, but um, I know Dr. Wow calls his PID a sniffer. It kind of helps him check to see where maybe there's a, I don't know, a, a sewer trap that's dried out a little bit or any, any number of indoor air quality problems. We look forward to his comments when he comes back on. Uh, Cliff, did you want, have one you wanted to do? I, I did, I did. I wanted to kind of uh, change subject to formaldehyde measurements. Uh, are there any issues where your equipment would be useful for an indoor air quality practitioner in dealing with uh, either formaldehyde in an environment or suspected formaldehyde in an environment? Uh, well, at the moment, Gray Wolf does not offer a formaldehyde sensor, and uh, uh, one day we hope to. Uh, you can believe that as soon as a sensor that's appropriate for the application is on the market, we'll be one of the first to incorporate it into our instrumentation. There, there are uh, some electrochemical or essentially electrochemical sensors for formaldehyde and in some cases being marketed for IAQ applications, but they have a significant, very significant uh, downside, which is that they're, they have strong uh, cross-sensitivity to carbon monoxide. And as you probably well know, carbon monoxide is, you know, very commonly at slightly elevated levels. Uh, you know, one or two or three ppm is very common. And if you have a, if you have a sensor that has, um, you know, say even just 50% cross-sensitivity, which is, you know, where our testing has shown that these sensors are, then if you have one ppm carbon monoxide, you're going to be reporting 500 ppb of formaldehyde. So you're going to be ending up with all kinds of false alarms. In fact, you mentioned the LEED uh, 3.2 requirement there. Uh, the requirement for carbon monoxide is to be under nine parts per million. And uh, on the other hand, for formaldehyde, you need to be below 27 parts per billion, um, it just, you, you would never be able to uh, use one of these electrochemical sensors, formaldehyde sensors, for that type of application. Again, they may be able to use be used for screening for extremely high exposures to formaldehyde, but for indoor air quality, they're, they're, they typically don't have the sensitivity, and that's why Gray Wolf does not offer that technology. Before we go to the, the roundup, I wanted to ask one more, maybe, maybe two more on some specific uh, components here that, that are parameters that I know your instrument is able to measure for. And one is ozone, but I believe that's not one of the six it comes with. You have to buy a different probe for the ozone. But can you talk to our listeners a little bit about measuring for ozone? Well, actually, uh, to correct you, out of the six sensors that we offer, what is in the model that's most typically sold for indoor air quality, 
the sixth sensor is a choice of either ozone or ammonia or hydrogen sulfide or nitrogen dioxide. So, in fact, there's a number of different sensors that can be put in there. Um, ozone happens to be the most popular one, and ozone uh, does have a couple of specific uh, issues. It's, it's an electrochemical sensor. Um, again, there are different ozone sensors on the market covering different ranges, and uh, the one uh, that uh, that we offer, made by a, a, a German company, Sensoric, is uh, what we've tested to be the one with the best low-end sensitivity. Again, you know, it's so crucial for IAQ. But it does, on the other hand, have a couple of drawbacks. One of them is that the sensor life, compared to other electrochemical sensors, is significantly shorter, where most electrochemical sensors are three or four years' lifetime. The ozone sensor that Gray Wolf offers has only an uh, a, uh, average of 18 months' life. So most of our users will plan to replace it once a year when they have the unit in for annual factory calibration. Um, the other um, thing to be aware of with the ozone sensors is that they are com- um, quite sensitive to flow rate. And um, you know many manufacturers will calibrate these where they're uh, blowing calibration gas directly onto the sensor. Um, and if they're being used in a more of a diffusion situation, you need to be sure that you're calibrating it for that diffusion application um, where other electrochemical sensors sh- uh, you know, show little or no uh, effect from flow- direct flow rate. The ozone sensor is uh, sensitive to the direction of the flow. Um, so that's something to be aware of. And, of course, somebody that's calibrating a ozone sensor themselves uh, Gray Wolf gives guidance on exactly how they need to, uh, you know, where where to position the calibration hood and uh, and so on and so forth. Let me slide one more in here before we go to the roundup because I, I did want to mention one of the things that got my attention when I talked to uh, your sales group there about the new advanced sense environmental test meter here was the fact that you've added a differential pressure component to the unit. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about why you decided to add that particular parameter to the unit and a little bit about the um, difficulties with measuring? Let's put it this way, some tips for listeners, again, just like you have been doing a great job of giving them here with respect to choosing a differential pressure measurement uh, instrument. Well, in my opinion... Uh, while there's a few champions for differential pressure measurement out there, um, I think differential pressure is probably the most neglected IAQ measurement that is available to investigators to add to their toolbox. And, you know, there are more general HVAC applications for it that, that, that apply to indoor air quality, such as measuring filter performance by measuring the pressure drop across a filter. But for IAQ, you know, pollutant pathways are so critical. You know, determining, you know, you've got a child care center that um, is located above a parking garage. You want to be certain that that child care center is staying in positive pressure compared to the parking garage. Otherwise, guess what? The fumes from the cars, the carbon monoxide, the, you know, the various combustion gases are going to get up into that child care area. The thing is that so often you're measuring very, very small amounts of differential pressure. And, of course, that pressure can change over time depending on 
how the air handling system is running, depending on, you know, even the the uh, weather outside, whether you're getting a stack effect in a building or not. So ideally, you want to be able to measure that over time. Well, the problem with measuring tiny pressures over time is that the there's such small pressure that these sensors, the electronic uh, sensors that are used for DP measurement, uh, would need to be recalibrated very frequently. And I'm not talking about even daily. I'm talking about every few minutes they need to be recalibrated at that zero. Well, what Grey Wolf does, and some other manufacturers, is we have an auto-zeroing circuit in there that automatically zeroes it. In our case, it defaults to every two minutes. It's a solenoid that just connects, and uh, so you're having a zero reference, and it recalibrates itself on its own every couple of minutes. That allows you to use that unit for measuring those tiny pressures over long periods of time or as you're making adjustments to the air handling system or lifting laboratory fume hoods to just see what difference that has to do with the pressure um, in the room that you're comparing to adjacent areas. Um, and uh, Grey Wolf has offered the what was originally the Solomat Zephyr uh, for this type of measurement, but uh, now we've incorporated it into the advanced sensor as an optional built-in sensor so that it can be used in conjunction with our standard IAQ probes or other probes that plug into that uh, new advanced sense unit. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. We're, what we're going to do is go to the roundup. Uh, Epiphany there, I've, I've still got your question. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's get uh, Dr. Weil in here and go to the roundup. Rick, hang in there with us for just a moment. It's been great so far. We appreciate you being here, and we'll be right with you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Dr. Dietrich Weil, there's your cue. Do we have it, uh, it certainly is. Good <laughs> afternoon and good afternoon or good morning, good evening, whatever the case may be, Rick. Uh, Rick, thank you very much for 45 minutes of nice background information on, on sampling. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm a little bit older than you are. <laughs> I'm older than anybody. <laughs> you probably don't have me by too much, though. <laughs> And you beat seventy-two? Uh, not quite yet, but uh, not 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 too far down the road. Uh, okay, seventy-one and a half. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, congratulations, Andy. He did it again. I turned Andy. He's the winner of our trivia question, uh, as usual. I turned him onto the show, and I didn't give him the answer. I don't know the answer, but I saw on. Um, Oh, what is that? Uh, the history, not history, environmental cha uh, channel. They had in China an earthquake monitor where balls were falling off from the direction where it was coming. I don't know. That's correct. You know what, dude? Somebody the got it. Actually, uh, Epiphany got it, and um, he beat beat 
Andy this week, and that was the correct answer. So yeah. you're all oh over. My, but Andy, Andy must have been sleeping over uh, there. Hey, I see his name up there. He must nah, he, no, he, he thought it was a German guy named Richter is what he texted <laughs> in. So you must have had too uh, much yeah. of an influence well, the, on the, You know, the Chinese have always been pretty good with measurements. I'm pretty sure they're the ones that designed the first hygrometer using horsehair. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they probably used the human hair at the time, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, a couple of wonderful things. People don't know how good they have it today and how inexpensive. Uh, when I worked on my master's thesis in 1964 or 65, I needed to uh, measure pressures, uh, very low pressures, as a matter of fact, pressures in the human skull under impact. And we got a couple of uh, uh, pressure probes. One probe without electronics, no output, <laughs> was about $1,500. Wow. And I screwed one up, and uh, I didn't go to my advisor for three days. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, and then I was looking at the uh, differential pressure um, transducer uh, for doing indoor air stuff. And I wanted to know what's the pressure there and what's the pressure over there. And uh, the first time I looked at one, I looked at one and that was the end of it. I think it was $4,000 or something like that. Today you can buy a pressure transducer in round numbers for $100. Maybe it's 150 I mean, yeah, it's, it's doable. People don't know that I worked with a gentleman by the name of Ken Stewart, who unfortunately is dead now, on one of the first dosimeters for noise. We had to build our own stuff. Another thing that Rick mentioned, and I like that, I like that. I'm still one of those people who reads books and likes paper. Uh, if you want to have a good book, buy the fundamentals uh, from ASHRAE. Uh, I bought mine. Mine is printed in 1965, and fortunately, the fundamentals haven't changed very much. You know, dear, that's a so great, great point. It is an outstanding good book. There is so much information in it, it is unbelievable. Mine has an old, uh, it's blue. I know it's where it is on my shelf. Here comes another one. Uh, which is very interesting. There was one of the brightest guys I read his papers years ago. That is that question of fast and slow response to whatever you're measuring. Now, if I measure for asbestos uh, today, and there are young people around it, uh, do I really need to know at this very moment how many asbestos fibers there are? No. There is a biological half-life. Yeah, nothing will happen with asbestos fibers in the human lung within whatever it is, 20, 25, 30 years, something like that. So <clears throat> you've got to adjust your sampling time according to what the agent is doing to the body. Now, would I like to know what the carbon monoxide level is in a house in a hurry? Yes, I would, because there is something that is happening now, not in 20 years. So that is a very interesting concept that you would like to have 
sensors which are based on the biological half-life and the action on the human body. Wow! I happen to have a one-eighth uh, and a one-quarter inch pedo tube. Mine is about four feet long. Yours is 60 inches, a little bit better. <laughs> um, another thing, and Rick, again, people don't read the manuals. They buy these wonderful black or green or yellow boxes, and they are using them. And I said, hey, there is a time delay. You know, you got to wait five minutes. If you only have three minutes, don't turn the damn thing on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's as simple as that. And I know that from guys. They have a temperature and relative humidity meter in the glove box of their car. They take it out and they take a measurement. That's it. I said, oh, my God, what happened here? The relative humidity in this room went down from 80 to 70 to 60. No, your instrument. <laughs> got the right temperature. What else do I have? Uh, I, like, I like the PDIs, uh, the photoionization detectors. They are wonderful sniffers. George, uh, Joe mentioned that to you. And uh, you can really, you know, you get instant response. They say, whoops, something is over here. Do you know what it is? No, you don't. But you know, I better start looking over here. And the next one is, these parts per million versus parts per billion. One part per billion is one thousandth of a part per million. That is an incredibly small quantity. And I don't know, and I don't think there is anybody in the world who knows what one, peep, uh, one part per billion, one PPB of whatever it is, will be doing to the human body. If you analyze all the chemicals which are in an orange or in a strawberry, you will find a bunch of very nasty chemicals in trace amounts, or what we call chemicals, of what little we know about um, uh, carcinogens. Uh, so we got to be careful. I don't like when people say, I take a SUMA canister that is that evacuated stainless steel vessel in which you uh, suck the air and then you send it to a laboratory and uh, $500 later they tell you what was in it in the parts per billion range. It's a, it's, it's a, I, 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 like, <laughs> I like a mass spectrometer, but that's anyway. <laughs> the other thing which I really have, and I run into that, I have a couple of instruments which use... Uh, electrochemical sensors for carbon monoxide, for instance. How much, and I, I have a couple of instruments, and I don't want, I have the money to buy it, but why do I have them over here, and, then two, and I don't use them for two or three years, and uh, I paid uh, like $200, $300 per sensor. I don't know what the price is today, uh, 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 Rick, for your instruments, if I need to replace the carbon monoxide monitor, uh, a monitor a sensor, and I shut up now. Thank you. <laughs> it's always, Doctor Wow. It's always great. Thank you, Rick. I know there there was a lot there. Any follow up comments to what Doctor Wow just said? Well, there were 
lot of interesting comments. Uh, I know we're uh, close to being out of time here, but uh, carbon monoxide, I might specifically say, those sensors are in the range of about $250 to replace the sensor. Um, of course, an important thing is if it's sitting on the shelf, like a lot of these sensors, if they're sitting on the shelf uh, two, three years, you could have the sensor could have uh, expired and not be responding, but even so, it probably would have drifted. And, uh, you know, a factory calibration might be what you really want to do, but at least you want to be able to check the calibration yourself, but be very careful. Don't assume, I know that a lot of people will say, okay, well, I know the air must be clean here. I'll use the background air. I'll assume it's zero. Carbon monoxide, you often are making a bad assumption if you're assuming it's zero. And, um, you know, another one is uh, for the photoionization detectors, you know, typical background levels of, of uh, VOCs in a building are anywhere from 50 to 500 ppb. That's very normal as a background. And if you're using that, saying, oh, it must be zero, and you're zeroing to that value, you're going to be, you know, off as much as half a ppm there, or 500 ppb right out of the gate. But uh, what you need is, you know, to follow the manufacturer's uh, directions. Hopefully the manufacturer supplies a lot of... uh, support and guidance on uh, how to maintain the equipment properly and um, uh, you know you need to you always need to know what the limitations are of the equipment that you're using and not just assume because that digit on there says oh you know 90.3% RH that it's going to be accurate down to that last digit it's almost never the case um, manufacturers tend to give you a little more digital resolution on units than they will uh, actually be able to achieve. And then once drift is involved or contamination of the sensor or what have you, you know, the unit may have gone out even outside of whatever the manufacturer's spec was. So work with your manufacturer to make sure you understand the capability of the equipment that you're using because, you know, with indoor air quality, such a critical application, it's very critical to know uh, what the capabilities of the equipment are. Rick, do you have time for one more quick question from Cliff? Sure. Okay, great. Rick, you've used the term several times, drift, and I just wondered if you have a specific definition for drift. Um, Well, I'd have to go back and uh, pull out my uh, fundamentals handbook from ASHRAE to get uh, their specific uh, definition. but it basically has to do with the gradual change in the output of a sensor over time. And, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, there are a number of things that can affect it. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, drift is very important with the photoionization detector. And uh, in order to use the sensors that we offer for IAQ, uh, we recommend that they are calibrated you know, each day that you use it. Why? Because the sensors that we offer, they typically will drift 10 parts per billion a day. Um, and that's, you know, just if they're not being used. If they're exposed to uh, heavy cigarette smoke, you can find much more significant drift. That cigarette smoke may burn off if you run the unit for a while, or it may just really shift the calibration. It's important to be able to Check the calibration, re-zero it, or, or readjust the gain a little bit to achieve the type of accuracy that you want for that application. But, you know, where 10 ppb may sound a lot, as uh, Dr. Deirdre was saying, 
uh, 10 ppb is a pretty tiny number, and the fact is that that sensor that we offer, uh, manufactured uh, by a, a U.S. company, we don't make it ourselves, um, that's the best we've been able to find. You know, other photoionization detectors are drifting 50, 100 ppb per day, and they can still be used for, for as bloodhounds or sniffers, and they can still be used for screening, but ideally you want something with minimal drift, but even minimal drift, those sensors do require frequent user uh, calibration checks. You know, one other thing, uh, contamination. You, know, you just mentioned cigarette smoke. I mean, I could see, uh, you know, going into a really, really smoky bar, a lot of smoke in the air, and really it's, you know, kind of like tar uh, th that's, that's in the air, and that could certainly coat or form a film on... The, the the components within uh, the sensor. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, again, I mean, some sensors, electrochemical sensors tend not to be that sensitive to it, or temperature sensors, uh, but uh, uh, certainly the non-dispersive infrared carbon dioxide dioxide sensors are very sensitive to something like cigarette smoke. I say sensitive, you know, you will see drift from that contamination. And... Um, uh, the, you also see it with the photoionization detectors, and you see it with the thin film capacitive humidity sensors as well. I mean, something to be aware of if you really have a high level of exposure, or if you've left the unit logging in a in a, a like a smoking lounge. Um, there's a case where you may not want to wait until the annual factory calibration. You may want to have a way to you know double check that the sensor has not drifted in the meantime. Um, the you know, different sensors, for example, the photoionization detectors will tend to burn that off over some time. But, um, you know, the higher the exposure, you know, as you can imagine, you may get to a point where you actually need to uh, then clean the sensor or potentially even, uh, you know, replace it. I think the one thing we've learned from both drift and contamination is that uh, practitioners uh, that are performing indoor air quality in inspections and probably need to include something on their billing as a line item for uh, you know, the depletion of sensors or something like that. You calibration know, for of equipment. Calibration yep. of equipment or whatever for every project that they do. Now, when you're, when you're, when you're, of course, assessing the cost of the equipment, you need to take into consideration the cost of whether you need, you know, your own calibration equipment, like I say, with a photoionization detector that's a must, or that, you know, factory calibration, the annual factory calibration. I should say one thing about the contamination side. Just the good news for indoor air quality is you usually don't have those kind of exposures that really cause problems. Yeah. It's more in, you know, the, the dirtier world that you generally find those problems. But, um, uh, of course, if one of your investigators decides, well, let me see the response of the sensor and sticks it in, the tailpipe of his Jeep, um, you know, that's where you can see some issues. Um, or the, the smoking issue, you know, the smoking lounges is the other one. Of course, these days, there's generally a lot less exposure to heavy cigarette smoke than there used to be back in the early 90s. Well, let me uh, just tell you, Epiphany, send us an email on that question you had there. We, we answered it briefly for you on a text, but, um, you know, we kind of need a little more detail to try and determine what you're trying to figure out, and we'll help you through that any way we can. I also want to thank Rick. Before we go, anything you want to add that we missed? 
Well, you know, I, I mentioned there's all different types of parameters that you can measure, and there's a number of important ones we didn't cover, like particulate is a very important one. Um, and then there's others like hydrogen sulfide and ammonia and chlorine that there is equipment specifically out there to measure. But, um, you know, the technology is moving along. Formaldehyde, um, you know, there are ways to do a bit of screening now. The instantaneous response sensors aren't quite there for IAQ applications, but probably within a couple of years, you know. Uh, keep, keep, keep tuned. The technology keeps improving. Well, we hope we can bring you back, and uh, we want to make sure we also thank you for being a sponsor of the show. We really appreciate the sponsorship and look forward to having you back on a future show. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity. All thank right. You. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes thanking today's guest, Mr. Rick Stonier from the Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Good show, Joe. Well, a lot. Before we go, next week I also want to let folks know we've got Dr. Mikhail Krasinowski from the he's the head of the Bonn office of the World Health Organization. So we've got a big international show next week. I hope uh, a lot of the people that were on the show with us today can listen in next week as well. Join us live. I also want to make sure I thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us as always and entertaining and uh, educating our listeners. Also, Austin Stone Cold Novak for assisting us at the controls, but most importantly, you are a growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Call recording has been completed.